0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps to you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Andrea Pearson, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Lindsay Baroker,
1: And I'm Joe Lalo.
0: And today we're interviewing a favorite from the older, the ancient, the long... I mean, it's been gone for so long. Old show. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, Chris Fox. Chris has published over 20 novels and has a series of nonfiction books that teaches writers how to duplicate his success. He's far better known for the writer faster... writer The write faster... Write Smarter series and has spoken all over the country about writing to market, making your writing a habit and quitting your day job to become an author. His true love, though, is science fiction and fantasy, which is why he was frequently on the previous show. <laughs> Those are some of my favorite episodes. Anyway, um, we're going to ask him about writing to market when uh, what his book launches look like today and a bunch of staying a bunch on staying motivated and productive. Anyway, welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. It's been forever today. a day. Yeah, it's exciting. I'm pretty excited to be involved this time, though you did come to my BookBub group once, if you remember that. I, I do. <laughs> Lindsay came to that too. Look, we're having a reunion. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that. When was this? Um was it, it was a podcast? 2017, nope, it was just my BookBub group. I was like, hey, mm-hmm. authors who are successful, come talk to my authors. And you did it, Kevin J. Anderson, Chris Fox, um, Kirsten Osborne, Um, my editor was one, I can't remember. It was, it was a lot of fun though. You guys answered questions and it was good. Awesome. Well, we now know Chris has a better memory than I do.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know about that.
0: Anyway. Okay. So Chris, um, for those who are new to you, uh, would you like to tell us how you got started in writing and indie publishing? Uh, sure.
2: So for writing, uh, like most of your audience, I started very young. I was six years old. The first time I knew I wanted to be an author, um, wrote off and on throughout my childhood, got to 18, realized, wait a minute, it's not as easy to sell a book as I thought it would be, gave up, um, and and didn't really write for a number of years, uh, finally published a short story and got paid for it in 2004. And I was like, wow, that's really cool, but it didn't pay any real money. It was two months of work and I got like 75 bucks. So I said to myself, okay, this is fun, but it's not something I can ever pay the bills with. And I just kind of walked away from it. And then, and I want to say 2012, I became aware of how big Kindle was getting. Romance authors were just killing it. I was starting to see more science fiction and fantasy come. And I said to myself, you know, this is going to be huge. And authors that go directly to Kindle are going to be able to bypass the gatekeepers for the first time. So I gave it a shot. I published my first novel in 2014. And back then, we all shared our data on keyboards. And I know a lot of people still do. But whenever a launch happened, you know, Wayne Stinnett or Lindsey Broker or myself, we'd go there and we would just share whatever data we had. Um, and so in 2014 and 2015, there was just this pool of information that anybody could get access to about how to publish online. And we were all sort of adding to it and helping each other you know, quit our jobs and become authors.
3: Awesome. And I'm kind of envious of your $75. I don't think I ever got more than like five in contributors copies.
2: <laughs> the the Rifter is where it's at. So Palladium's Rifter, and they pay well.
3: <laughs> ah, excellent. You can so, buy many cups of coffee. That's good, actually. I'm kind of impressed. So it's been about maybe two or three years since we had you on the Sci-Fi and Fantasy Marketing Podcast. And I'll put it in the show notes, put the episodes in case people want to go back and stalk you successfully. Um, so you've been full-time for a while, but I think you've moved and had a daughter since we last interviewed you. What has that done to your writing schedule and <laughs> what kind uh, of challenges have you had? So
2: so my son's name is Kalen.
3: Oh, I'm which, sorry. I see. I haven't know, been paying enough attention to even like. like stalk it sounds you like a girl's name.
2: And so everybody tells me, how is your daughter doing um, whenever they, they read the name? Because it sounds like it could be uh, a female name, Kalen, uh, but it's Irish. So Kalen. Uh, Kalen's doing great. It has been, what's, what's a way I can succinctly put this? Um, a very positive change in my life. Like I love being a dad. I can't say enough good things about this, but it threw a grenade in my life in a way that nobody really prepared me for. So all my author friends are like, all right, Chris, what you're going to need to do is put a book or two in like, you know, a a, a drawer and get ready to release those because you're going to have a few months, you know, where you don't get very much sleep and it's going to take a while to get back to normal. Well, for the first year, I got four hours of sleep a night. And was just an absolute wreck. I couldn't think. I couldn't, you know, get anything done. It was just triage going through, you know, trudging day after day. And when I looked up at the end of the word, the year, as it turned out, I wrote a million words last year. So, uh, I'm sleep deprived and work always feels weird these days, but I'm still getting a ton of stuff done. It just changes the nature of your life. But I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give it up for anything.
3: Awesome. And I'm um, sorry again for. <laughs> <laughs> Getting the gender wrong. I feel like a bad like stalker. I'm not paying close enough attention to your life, Chris. I'm sorry. Um, but do you have any, you know, we've kind of talked about on shows before how it's actually you can be more productive when you have a limited time in the day. Is, is that kind of been your experience?
2: Yes. I got really, really soft. So like I had all day long to think and enable gaze and research and do whatever I wanted. And now I don't. And so now I'm on it. I get up at 5am. Um, I don't go to the gym anymore. I, I bought my own gym equipment. and I work out in the garage where I, I have my office. Um, but from 5am, I'm just going, going, going all day long, uh, you know, getting the words down, getting the business taken care of, working out. Uh, and I have this urgency. I can't seem to shake that, you know, showed up right around the same time my son was born.
1: Interesting. Well, uh, I think that we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, productivity and motivation, which meshes well with what you were just talking about. Um, so it's been established on the show that my writing quota is 3,000 to 5,000 words. And uh, when we were sort of discussing the stuff we might want to talk about on this episode, uh, I was intrigued by the concept of writing 5,000 words an hour, which was one of the things on our list. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yes. And I've come full circle here. So for those of you that remember me from 2015, when I did the podcast circuit forever and a day ago, I was talking about back then how I had a day job and I had to run or excuse me, run, ride the number 54 bus into San Francisco every morning. And that's where I got my writing done. So I had an hour commute and I was bouncing along on the bus of getting my words down. And every day my mission was how many words can I get down? And the goal was 5,000. And that's where the title of the book originally came from because my daily goal was 5,000. I only had that commute really to get, you know, the words written. I needed to make sure that I got it done. Well, after I went full time in 2016, that was no longer a priority for me. I, I didn't need to have it done in an hour. And so I stopped trying to push for 5,000 words an hour and I got a lot less efficient. Once Caleb was born, I kind of flipped back and now I'm really working hard to fit everything into an hour to get my words done quickly and well each day. So, so not, you know, crap that I'm shoveling out, but the best words I've ever written, written in an hour. So at the end of an hour, in my case, my average words per hour is 3,600 if I'm I'm typing instead of dictation. At the end of an hour, I want to know that I've written 3,600 of my words and that if I put in another half hour, I'm done for the day. So between 5 a.m. and 7, I go hard. And at the end of that time period, as I'm doing the rest of my day, I know that my draft words are down.
1: That's just just incredibly, uh, aspirational to me. I don't want to say motivating because it's, it's actually sort of terrifying to me, but it, like, it's cool. Number one, it's like you prepared yourself to eventually have to come back uh, and do it again. Like you had, you had it already in your toolkit, as opposed to having to produce your 5,000 words an hour, uh, uh, technique, uh, you know, when also trying to raise a child that was necessitating the, another 23 hours of your day.
3: My up uh,
2: by the way, three three 300,000 words written and edited for the year so far. Today is April 1st.
3: Awesome. I'm going to be impressed again because I can't type that fast, I have to admit. I'm usually pretty good. 2,000 about my average. might get 2,500. So I just got to put in the chair longer. I think Dean Wesley Smith has mentioned he only types like 800 words an hour. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you just got to grind it out if you're not fast. But um, do you have tips for kind of getting into the flow state quickly and just rocking it with the time you have?
2: I do. I've got a complete system at this point. So I actually sent a, a graphic to Andrea, which I guess you guys can toss into the show notes, but it's basically a five-step process for um, getting into flow state quickly. So the first thing that I do is get up the correct uh, document so I can actually see achieving flow state. There we go. So first thing I do is always... Rachel Aaron's defining the words. It, you know, we've all read 2K to 10K. If you haven't read 2K to 10K, I highly recommend it. It's a short read, very motivational. And it, it really helped me up my word counts. But what Rachel suggested, and, and I tried to build on, is know what you're going to write before you sit down on the chair. If you don't know what scenes you're writing, so I always do this the night before, I'll just, just a paragraph. I'm going to write a chapter about this from this person's perspective. These people are going to be in the scene. This is the scene goal. You know, whatever works for you. If you're a cancer, it can be even less than that. If you're a plotter and you want to write more, that's fine. But before you sit down, ideally the night before, you want to know what the words that you're writing are. So your subconscious is already sort of pre-writing that before you sit down. Um, when you were sitting down, I build a sanctuary. And the sanctuary can be anywhere. It can be in a bus. It can be you know, in a Starbucks. It doesn't matter. A headset and a laptop is really all you need but ideally it should be in the same time in the same place every day. This is just the way that um, our neurology works as humans. We're habit-based. So if you wake up at the same time with an alarm, eventually if you stop setting that alarm, you'll keep waking up at that same time anyway. It's the same with your writing. If you train yourself to, I set down the laptop, I open the screen, I've already got Scrivener up and I just start typing because I knew I was going to write then in a 20 minute span, you can get down, you know, 12, 1500 words. You do that two or three times a day, you know, in in little breaks here or there. And before you know it, you're up to that you know, 3,500 or 5,000 words that you need.
3: Yes. I definitely follow that rule of like trying to figure things out the night before. Cause I, if I don't, it's a really big difference. I'm sitting there going like, okay, I got to figure out the scene before I start writing it much easier when you already know it's in your head and is just kind of playing like a movie. Um, you mentioned dictation. So I'm curious what your thoughts are on, like, do you have to do a lot more editing when you choose to dictate it? Or do you, which do you prefer?
2: I prefer typing because of the editing difference. Um, it was a lot more useful for me when my time was more limited. I don't do it as often now, but I am starting to get back into it. I just bought myself a treadmill. Um, so walking on a treadmill, dictation way better than trying to type on a keyboard, I found. Um, and in that case, it's worth doing. So like, I'll put on like an episode of like black sales and I'll start just, you know, reading out loud and, and, you know, at the end of it, I'll clean it up and it's not too bad off. Um, it hasn't really changed in the last five years. You're, you're speaking your punctuation other than that, it's just exactly the same as you'd be typing normally. But I I think the learning curve is really hard for most new authors. If you try dictation, I would say 80% of the people I talk to give up after one or two sessions and never use it again. But the people who square by it, especially people with wrist problems, um, it is faster, like undeniable, even if you have to do some extra editing afterwards.
1: Yeah. Dictation is one of those things where I have, I've given it more than one or two sessions, but it, it, uh, turns out I need the amount of time it takes me to type something to think of what I'm going to say next. So I end up not saving too much time with, with dictation with obviously with practice, it would get better, but I, I end up, uh, just basically having to pause and think and then talk again. It's, it's sort of embarrassing. Um, but all right, so we're talking about high creative output. And so I realized that, uh, you know, we're talking about 5,000 words an hour, but that's really 5,000 words a day when you only have an hour, right? <laughs> like that's Right. Sort of and it, and it, I amount.
2: mean, it, it, it's a clickbait title. I, I freely admit it. You know, my goal was never, oh, I'm going to write five hours a day at 5,000 words an hour, although I have done that once. My record is 24,000 words in a day at this point.
1: My record remains merely seven thousand words in a day, <laughs> but uh, so, but still, we're talking five thousand words. Even a five thousand words in a day is is like it's my high quota. And Again, I've done more than that, but for some people, that's an incredibly high, uh, you know, bar to try to reach, and they would consider it to be huge creative output to try to achieve that. Uh, how does one stay motivated uh, when so, maintaining such high output, particularly by necessity?
2: I recommend lowering your goals as soon as possible initially so that you're hitting them. So if you're pushing yourself beyond your limits, you give up really easily. It's super hard to sustain the words that you need to hit on a daily basis. If you could just barely hit 5K, I would set a goal for myself at 3,500. Because I know I'm going to hit that every single day. And you know what? If I only hit 4,500 words that day, the question to myself is, should I think about that as a win? I got an extra 1,000 words. Or should I think about it as a loss where my goal was 5,000 and I only hit 4,800? Um, so setting realistic goals, I think it's where it's at. We've got to get our brains used to being excited about writing and then, you know, um, excited about succeeding. So setting those realistic and easy goals is where I go. And if I fall out of the habit, if I haven't written a while, if, you know, things are going south in my life, I shorten the duration of my sprints and I write shorter. And I find that that's easier to sustain. So if I can't do 20 minutes, maybe I can do five and get, you know, 300 words down.
1: Now, just some motivation is not just a problem to like maintain high output. Sometimes motivation is an issue just to get any output, like 2020 and 2021 have been trying for a number of very specific reasons. And I'm sure a lot of us are having that sat there motivation, enthusiasm, even when writing what used to be the escape, Like, Do you have any sort of recommendation for just in general, when you fall off the wagon because of, you know, reasonable things in your world, trying to re-motivate yourself?
2: I do. Um, I'm uniquely suited to answer this. I think uh, anybody who's followed my channel for a while knows that I have depression. And you know, when the depression is bad, I, I tend to disappear for a while. Um, and when that happens and you're not writing, then you just start feeling guilty and you get into your whole vicious cycle of, oh, I can't get the words down and now I'm stressed about life. Um, the first thing I try to do is give my, myself permission and say, okay, I'm at a point where I need to reboot. I'm burned out. I've got to get to a point where I'm excited about writing again. So identifying where you're at is the first step. Um, then I start looking for my support network. Do you have people in your, your life that support you? If you do go to them and say, Hey, listen, I'm kind of struggling right now. I'm going to take a little bit of a, a back seat on writing just for a bit and get my foot under me. And then I start thinking about what it is I'm working on. What book am I writing? What series am I working on? Am I enjoying that? Is it fun? Am I trapped in what I'm writing? And, and that's why I can't get the words down? Do I just have no interest in this series anymore? It's an albatross around my neck. Um, and if that's the case, maybe you need to write something new. And oftentimes I will switch gears and, in general, I don't recommend doing that. You know, finish a series first before moving on to another one. But if you're at a point where you can't write because you just have zero interest in what you're working on and you're only doing it because it's what you're you're supposed to do, um, take a big step back and, and see if you can find some passion. Because if we don't have passion, we're not going to write and no amount of motivation and no amount of telling yourself, Hey, listen, I should do this is going to get you in the chair. What's going to get you in the chair is remember the first time you thought you could be a professional author. And the first time you had the idea maybe I can write a story and other people are going to read this and love it. And then you did it. Well, get back to that, get back to the excitement. And, and I think the rest follows from there.
1: Uh, that's definitely excellent advice. And, and, um, it's, you talk about like sometimes you gotta take a moment and, and write something else. That's the way my, my Patreon got started was because I tended to palate cleanse with short stories, and so like, you know, maybe don't write a full novel uh, as your other thing. You could conceivably just you know take an eight thousand word break, and then you got this nice little short thing, or even just a fragment. So yeah, that's that. That's advice I also would have given. Um. So something that goes hand in hand when we talk about motivation is uh, burnout. Like, let's say, for example, that you have succeeded in, you know, raising, ratcheting up your, uh, your uh, quota and you've been hitting it pretty consistently. Uh, and so you've been planning your year uh, around that capacity. And then suddenly you find that you have completely used yourself up. That's a gigantic problem you could have. You start missing, you know, deadlines and stuff like that. So like, how does one avoid burnout? Like, can you? plan to avoid burnout.
2: Yes, very much so. So um, I use a lot of gardening analogies. If you think of your creative subconscious like a field then you can't strip-plant it every year and constantly be pulling ideas out of it and making stuff and producing without putting stuff back into it. It needs to be a fun endeavor. So what I'll typically do is if I'm starting to feel burnt out, I will consume more entertainment than I will produce. Um, I'll try to find a great new show that I haven't seen. I'll start asking friends, you know, what have you seen recently that you really love? I'll go back and visit an old favorite. Um, but I've got to refill the well. And if you're not refilling the well, you can only go for so long. You know, if we're going back to the planting analogy, if you take all of the nutrients out of the soil, eventually you can't grow anything at all. Um, at some point, you need to switch to peanuts or another, you know, bumper crop that's going to put nutrients back in the soil. And I think um, what I've seen work for a lot of authors and is interesting is switching genres. Um, oftentimes they'll do a nonfiction and that's like you said, a palate cleanser and, and they'll find that afterwards they're a little bit able to produce, I guess, better than they were before because they've sort of circumvented that burnout. I can hear my son knocking.
0: <laughs> that's me trying to say, okay, and a smiley face that didn't end up a smiley face in their chat. <laughs> okay, so um, um, I really, really, this has been really, really good for me because I'm like, especially that you you need to feel your creative well when you're actually experiencing that burnout you've got to be able to consume more entertainment than you produce i really like that i went through that for almost a whole year this last year and finally in january i was like i'm so ready and i've written like three and a half books since the start of the year now. And I'm like you, except my youngest is two and he still wakes up all night. So I'm still sleep deprived two years after Mm -hmm. he was born. But, but if, if that, you know, that energy is there and that excitement's there, it doesn't really matter. You can still, you know, you can still keep going and you don't have to like drag as much as you know, you do when you're, dragging.
2: (laughs) I was excited to get up every day. I was working on the epic fantasy every day. I wanted to write more of it. I wanted to get in there instantly. It didn't matter that I was exhausted and in pain. I mean, when you get that level of excitement, you're telling a story you really believe in, like, it's just so much fun. So finding that zone, I think is our, our real goal as writers. And it's something we can systematize.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay. So you've mentioned that you're working towards hitting a million words this year. You hit a million words last year, right?
2: Oh, right. So the people we hang with do like 2 million words, like it's yeah. nothing. And so yeah. a million words to me doesn't sound that impressive, but to a lot of people does. It does. So yeah. last year I did it and I was like, okay, that's cool. It's about where, you know, I, I think I can handle this year. I decided I wanted to do it and document it. So I created the road to a million words. I created a spreadsheet and invited anybody who wanted in to join it. Um, and so some people are tracking their words alongside me and just every day I'm posting updates. People clone the sheet, make their own, um, and so you can see where I'm at. So as of today, I'm, um, 294,000 words in, um, that's written and edited. So I've completed four novels at this point, uh, one of which is 200,000 words long. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a matter of tracking it and systematizing it. I know every day what my goals are. I can see color coding. If I don't have my words, um, I know how far behind I am and how long it's going to take me to get back on it, but it's having that system. And it's also very helpful to have other people in the sheet. So I can see I'm not the only one going through this.
0: That's awesome. Um, Do you have any other tips for someone who'd like to not just make that kind of goal, but actually keep it, like, commit to doing it and how they can stay on track?
2: Yeah, and and I I mean, it goes back to the same thing I've already said, which is the small goals. But if you had to choose between, I can set uh, a thousand word a day goal and hit it 50% of the time, or I can set a hundred word a day goal and make sure I hit it a hundred percent of the time, I would go with a hundred words a day. Because if you do that for, why don't we say a month, you're gonna get tired of it. You're gonna start chafing. You're gonna say, you know what? I could do 200. I could do 300. I could do 500. You're gonna naturally step up, but you're gonna keep hitting those goals. It's the same way that when you're lifting weights, you incrementally increase that weight. But if you start too heavy, you just never go any further and you give up because it's too hard and you fail too often.
0: Yeah, that's a really great point. Um, and that's something that I usually do. I tend to be a dreamer and I usually set my goals really, really high. I'm a hard worker. So, I I get more done than most do, but I still feel uh, like that. You know, I'm like, I'm such a failure. I didn't do 3 million words or whatever. I've never actually set that kind of a goal. I just do it on a weekly basis. But uh, if you don't set a goal and if it's not reasonable, you don't make it. But I mean, if you don't set any goal at all, you're not going to make any goal, you know?
2: my danger was I would stop tracking after a book. So like I'd end a book on, let's say the first and maybe I wouldn't start a new book until the 11th. And I've lost like 10 or 11 or 12 days and I'm not tracking or doing anything. And this year um, I'm much more diligent about tracking every day and making sure I write more frequently. So I don't have those long gaps.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. Okay, so um, we're going to go ahead and start talking about writing to market just because Chris Fox is like the writing to market like guy. (laughs) Everybody knows (laughs) you as that. Um, But just would you give a brief explanation for what writing to market is for those who are new to podcasting, the authoring stuff, all of that in general?
2: Absolutely. So when you first start writing, we were all taught to write from the heart and create a wonderful story and get it out there and sell it. Writing to market means before you sit down and write your book, you have looked at the market and you understand that there is some market for what it is you're trying to write. If you want to write military science fiction, you've looked and said, okay, people do read books about spaceships and there are some books for sale and I know that it's out there. Um, the Venn diagram, if you will, of this is the stuff that's selling needs to overlap with this is what I love. So right in the middle there, this thing that you love, maybe that's military science fiction, maybe that's epic fantasy. In in my case, whatever it is you want to write needs to be something you enjoy that can also sell. So if you have to choose between I can write sloth poetry or I can write you know, um, steamy, erotic romance, you're going to choose a steamy, erotic romance because that's what's going to sell. The The goal, though, is that you need to love what you're doing. Um, lots and lots of people will pick something that they think is profitable and write it, even though they hate it. There is a guy that lurked on keyboards forever. He was affectionately known as Scarf Guy uh, or Scarf Man, and he hated writing erotica. hated it, absolutely hated it, denigrated it constantly, but he made good money, and so he stuck with it. I don't think you need to do that. I think you should find something you enjoy because... Fans are going to sense whether or not you're authentic, and if we have to be doing something this hard, you may as well enjoy it.
1: Absolutely. Um, so there's different kinds of markets. Uh, we, we things like romance and thrillers—they have like there are evergreen markets like those, and then there's uh, other markets that emerge just because they just never existed before, and suddenly there they, that market is there and hungry because there were no books available, and there are niches and stuff that uh, that you know wax and wane. So if someone say is interested in writing the market, and they discover they have an aptitude for, you know, we'll, we'll say they they have an equal aptitude and interest in writing in, in an evergreen market or an up and coming niche. Like, what sort of market is better to target if you actually have the, you know, the benefit of the choice?
2: It's hard to answer because both of them have advantages, and it depends specifically on the market because markets will have different criteria. So some readers will vary from market to market. Um, I. I tend to stay away from writing to trend these days. So so what we're talking about here is do I pick a trend, like let's say vampires are hot right now, vampire detectives. And do I then turn around and write myself a vampire detective story that's very similar to the other vampire detective stories that are selling? Or do I do something a bit more evergreen and I take something as a core, like epic fantasy, and maybe I put my own spin on it and I'm making my own niche, but I'm basing it off of a much more broad general um, market. I've done both. And if you succeed, I think you'll make more money in going with an evergreen market. But it's much easier to succeed at writing, um, if you will, a copycat book, a written-to-trend book where you've sort of examined what's popular, looked at the tropes, looked at the conventions, and synthesized your own version of that. Um, both of them are fun for me, too. Like, well, writing to an existing trend can be a lot of fun. I did that with superheroes. Um, and I did it with military science fiction, but I also really enjoy having some creative freedom and, and dropping surprises that readers don't see because you're sort of building your own conventions when you, you write in evergreen genres and construct your niche.
3: Yeah. It's been a couple of years since I read the book, but I remember as far as picking a category and kind of figuring out if it had potential to be profitable, but wasn't so competitive. Could you, I know you kind of looked at the number one ranking book in a category and then the hundred and, and saw like, was there demand? Could you kind of, tell our readers how they can figure that out for themselves or attempt to.
2: It's, it's much um, harder than it used to be in some ways. Uh, I look at the rank of the books in the same way. I'm looking at number one. Now you're looking at number 50 instead of number 20, because back then they were 20 per page now they're 50 per page. So I generally look at the top 100. So look at number one, Number 50 and number 100. But what is far more important to my studies in genres now are the number of new releases. Because, you know, it's been five years since I I wrote Right to Market and almost every genre is saturated. And how saturated they are changes, you know, from time because you'll see trends change and people will try something new. But in the areas where it is saturated, like you'll have hundreds and hundreds of new books coming out. So if you find a trend that you're interested in writing, the ranks are fairly decent on the number one and let's say the number 50 book. And there's only 50 new books in the new releases. Um, you're much, much better off than if you see a similar genre where there's 250 books in the new releases. And that's sort of the barometer I'm using at this point. Um, we used to have to do this stuff by hand, which I absolutely love doing, but Alex over at Klytics, um, I, I plug this guy way too often, but I love this man has created reports that give all the information that I research. So if you don't want to do the research yourself, um, I definitely recommend Alex's report Kalytics, because they're going to give you all that information. You'll see the, the conventions, you'll see the um the strengths of a genre, how well it's performing, whether it's on the uptrend or the downtrend. Um Alex just came out with a report recently for epic fantasy, which of course I looked at immediately to compare to my own research, and I agree with everything it said, and he found that as a genre it is on the wane, not, you know, terribly. It's it's always going to be doing well because it's evergreen. Um, but it was really nice to be able to look at his report and say, okay, that dovetails perfectly with what I was expecting.
3: Yeah, I'd love to ask you a couple of questions about that because Joe and I are both working on Epic Fantasy <laughs> this year too. I think we're all going to have something launched pretty soon. Is that something you picked because, you know, I know you're talking about on your YouTube channel too, and and we'll link to that in the show notes in case people want to check out the videos. Is that like a passion project for you or did you also kind of look at it and apply your, you know, is this a good market method, methodology, methodology? What's the word? (laughs) That's it.
2: (laughs) I, I got really lucky, really lucky because this is a passion project. This is the story I started working on when I was six. And so when I was in high school and I ran Dungeons and Dragons, all of my campaigns took place in the story world and we built NPCs and nations. And so I've got like three decades of material. We're talking like, seven or 800,000 words of background material. And we have a published role-playing game called the Magitech Chronicles, which takes place in the same universe. So I have an existing role-playing game. I understand how all my rules work, um, you know, how the magic works. And so this is the ground for where I start writing the epic fantasy novel. I cranked it out. I had more fun than I've ever had writing in that 200 page or 200,000 page book, 200,000 page, 200,000 word book. Uh, And so then when I started looking at the market again to say, okay, I'm going to start approaching how do I want to sell this? I already knew I was going to be targeting military fantasy, and I already knew that epic fantasy was one of the ways that I wanted to go, but I didn't realize that progression fantasy had become a thing. So if you're not familiar, Andrew Rowe released a series not too long ago, a few years back, which I absolutely love. Just fantasy is great stuff. Um, and the basic premise is any main character who is growing stronger in a very linear way, they're getting more powerful magic swords. They're using you know specific techniques that they're learning or new spells. But you're seeing a main character start off pretty weak and get stronger and stronger and stronger and sort of watching their their growth. So in a way, you could argue that the Wheel of Time is progression fantasy. Um, and as it turns out, Shattered Gods, my series fits nicely into that. And that is a huge genre right now with tons of people reading it. And what they want is crunch. They want to see numbers. These people are lit RPG fans. So this is a passion project, but as it turned out, there was a massive market for it. Um, because my time is more limited, uh, a lot of people know that I, I do most of my own audiobooks. books. Uh, I knew this would be hot. I went to a publisher. They were very, very interested. I sold the rights immediately because uh, they saw the same thing I did. This is gonna be a long progression fantasy and it's a passion project and you've got tons of maps and you know stuff to go with it. Um, I don't know, fingers crossed. I, I think that this will be a great intersection for me.
3: Cool, I've got that too. <laughs> I don't have, I have a map, but, um, are you actually doing it kind of like a lit RPG with stats and things or just the kind of character that the orphan boy, farm boy type that becomes the powerful wizard type by the end of the series? Um, so
2: both. So I, the stats exist on the website. So they're not in the book. You're not getting to an end of a chapter and saying, okay, they gained, you know, X number of hit points. But, um, his character sheet changes as you're going through the books. And I track that. And so you can go to the website and say, okay, at the end of this part of the book, he's gotten this power and ability and he's gotten this XP. Um, he purchased this. And that's true for all of the characters in the book. And there's a lot of them.
3: <laughs> awesome. Well, you should get the, the RPG people too, then. That'd be cool. And, uh, military fantasy is one of those categories I'm always looking at. Like, this one is not very competitive yet because it's pretty new mm-hmm. on Amazon at least. Hey, it's uh, Brandon Sanderson and us basically. <laughs> yeah. I always have like soldiers in mind. So I'm like, should I put it in there? But they're not really like, it's not like black company or something like that.
2: I figure if you've got battles, it fits enough and, and nobody's <laughs> called me on it. So.
3: All right. So could you, t- you talk about Alex noon and how we had the epic fantasy report out. Can you talk about any other research that you might have done or be doing now before you get ready to launch?
2: Um, sure. So I, I will use Google trends as a starting point always. Um, I, and I want to see over time what epic fantasy terms are doing. So I'll look for dragons. I'll look for thrones. I'll look for gods. I'll look for each of these things and see, okay, how are they doing over the last five years? What looks like it's on the upswing, excuse me, what looks like it's on a downswing. And what I'm doing is looking for symbols because these are the symbols I'm going to use in advertising. Once I launch the book. So if Thrones are on the upswing and they don't seem to be super saturated to me because Game of Thrones is over and so it's not it's not like a popular trope anymore, maybe I'll lean into that with the advertising. And so when I'm testing images, I'll test a lot more of that particular symbol. Um, so that's kind of the phase that I'm at right now trying to build that long list.
0: So a little while ago, you wrote a book, uh, a series that was like fantasy mixed with science fiction and it was the mage ones or whatever they were. Um, do you remember those? Do you remember Magic. your books you wrote? <laughs>
2: I, I do vaguely. And, and and sadly, that's true. It is vague. I can only remember parts of some of them. <laughs> that's the Magitech Chronicles. That's the one that we have the role playing game for.
0: Yeah. So uh, I remember when that came out, you were like, I'm going to try something brand new. And, and this is going against what, you know, what I've always said, you know, I'm like right to market and hit the market the way you want it and all of that. Um, if you were to do something similar to that again, I mean, how would you approach that sort of a project like mixing two? big genres how would you approach that when it comes to writing to market
2: um it's the combination of symbols so if you are writing um fantasy and science fiction in my case i'm using starships alongside dragons somebody needs to be able to tell at a glance with what is special about your setting so um god what did he call it i'm trying to remember and i can't maybe diesel punk um but there was a series where you had a woman standing on the hood of a car and she had a sword, a samurai sword in her hand. So it's Katana. That tells you a lot about the setting you're getting into. And as it turns out, um, basically, they're like modern day knights. So it's a cross between like Mad Max and, you know, your typical fantasy. And um, the details escape me. I can't remember the name of the author, even though it's a good friend. But when you're doing that, you just need to make sure that the symbols are clear to your audience. If they can see in a picture, oh, this is what I'm getting, that's enough to get it across. And then it's really going to be about the strength of the, the writing.
0: Okay. So another question, when you're writing like nonfiction, how do you, because you've got tons of nonfiction books, how do you approach writing to market with your nonfiction
2: so this is going to be true increasingly in the future for fiction. And I recommend people take this approach, but it's already true for nonfiction and it has been people don't buy nonfiction books because they're on Amazon typically and say, Oh, this is going to solve my problem. It does happen sometimes, but the vast majority of people that are making sales and, and you know, anybody who has nonfiction, I can tell you this is you go on a podcast, someone hears you give the solution to a problem and they think, okay, this book maybe is going to solve it and they buy it that way. So it's about your authority and your command in the space And in the case of genre fiction, that's usually our Facebook groups or wherever we tend to hang out. So oftentimes you'll see five or six big authors in a genre, they'll come together, they'll make one Facebook group, where they're all posting um, and sharing each other's readers. And they'll just sort of create a community where people can come together and and be a part of something. It's more about building a lifestyle uh, and less about selling books at that point. And once you've done it, it sort of, sort of self-sustaining. So the people that are in your group will welcome new people. Um, They'll say, Hey, listen, have you read this series? Did you know that Chris wrote this? And and so they sort of sell your work for you. If you create the community where they can hang out. Um, And I learned that first in nonfiction, I'm finally getting around to doing it for fiction and it works just as well.
0: Awesome. Um, is okay. So if you were to write a book, uh, that in, in a genre that is a commercial genre, it's something that you really, really want to sell. Well, is there ever a situation where you wouldn't seriously focus on like writing to market? I mean, and and if so, what would you do instead?
2: There isn't, I think that whenever you're selling anything, and this is just not, not just books, we have to think about who we're selling it to. If you could Take away one piece of advice from every podcast you've ever seen about writing. It's think like your reader. Think like your reader. Be your reader. Think about why they read the books they read. What are they getting out of it? Why are they excited to get up in the morning and get on their commute and read your book? Listen to your audiobook? And if you stay in touch with those readers and you learn the wonder that they feel when they're reading your material and you kind of keep that close, that's going to bleed into all of your writing and it's going to help you build a wonderful community and it's just going to snowball from there.
3: Definitely. And, um, one more right to market question. I, I think at one point you were actually talking about writing, doing a right to market 2 book and maybe scrapped it. Um, is there anything updating five years later that writers should know now that's changed? So you'd mentioned already that you're kind of checking the new releases more than like, I don't know what you were looking at before, just sales ranking and kind of competitive competitiveness of the genre. Is there anything we need to know for 2021?
2: Um, I finished the book. It actually was pretty good, but I didn't release it because anytime you release a book where I'm using genres as research, those genres get screwed. It happened in military science fiction the first time I put out a book and I was like, Oh, cool. All of these romance people are going to love me because most of the people that um, wanted to know more about writing to market romance was the biggest one. I had a bunch of romance examples in there. Um, I think the, the best advice that I can give, it's sad because this should be said a lot more often, is we're not reading enough in our genres. So like, if you really want to be successful and you really want to look at what you're not doing right now that you probably could be, how many books are you reading a week? Not a month, you know, not a year. How many books are you reading a week in your genre? And are you reading anything outside of your genre that might be useful for it? Documentaries, biographies. Um, we constantly need to be growing as authors uh, for our stuff to improve. Uh, and when we do that, When a new market comes along, when you see a perfect intersection, you're like, man, I can write this hilarious series, in my case The Dark Lord Burt. You'll be uniquely positioned to get it out there quickly, to write it well, and to find a good market. And I see a lot of authors like um, Rick Partlow leaps to mind. I've watched Rick toil in the trenches for years and years and years and years and years. And then, you know, abruptly, I want to say in 2018 or 2019, he broke out and he started making a ton of money and doing really well. But that came about as a result of him doing all the right things for a long time, learning the basics, mastering his writing, and being in the right place at the right time when you saw a genre he can capitalize on
3: good advice and i can see what you would be going through because i remember i think i've told you this before i was working on my first space opera series when um right the market came out i was like no <laughs> i was like this is too close to m-. i was going to do military sci-fi remember second category i was like this is going to get so many people publishing books in this and it did <laughs>
2: But I got lucky because shortly thereafter, Lit RPG came along and I just quietly, you know, stopped saying stuff. And then they all tripped it over to Lit RPG.
3: Very cool. Well, um, you, I think we're doing an, an anonymous pen name at one point. If you're open to talking about that, how did it go and did you learn anything from it?
2: That was a lot of fun. So hypothetically, if there was a, a pen name that I did that I am under contract not to speak about with anybody, um it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to release something under a pen name that no one knows in a genre with a very specific target where I understood this is going to be an evergreen genre. It will sell 10 to 20 copies of a book that people will pay $10 for every single day until the end of time. So, you know, I'll be making a hundred bucks a day just from this one book and it's never stopped doing that. And I don't advertise it at all. I have not a penny going to this. It's just money rolling in. Um, I would love to do it again. It's really cool to be able to locate a niche and make a pen name for that niche that nobody knows about. Because if you're a fairly successful author and you drop your name in there, you're, you're shining a huge floodlight on that genre. But if you do a nice little pen name that nobody's aware of, you know, you can get away with it. And you can also write things you would never write under your own main main, uh, pen name.
3: I did that myself, though. I found that once I stopped publishing books under the pen name, that they kind of everything slowly died off. It it did become a much more competitive genre over the years. So it's not surprising, but do you, have you, are you still working on it? Do you feel, find that it's hard to keep two going? Well,
2: I, I haven't done anything uh, with it really since we published it. So we finished it, we published it, we let it go. And I would just watch it and collect the money. So it's no additional work for me and I'll never have to do anything further with it. Um, it just happened to be a niche that the two of us identified. We both work in the tech world and we saw an area that wasn't being adequately explained. So, I mean, I'm, maybe this is getting a little closer to the topic than I should, but it's a how-to book. Um, and that will always be a how-to book for a topic that will always need an answer. In, and I feel like we wrote the best one. So in 10 years, I expect it'll be selling the same number of copies a day.
0: How, how to raise children. <laughs> how to sell, how to sell 10 copies a day. <laughs> okay. So, um, all right, we're going to go ahead and talk about other marketing related questions. Um, okay. Uh, my question for you, first question for you, I do have a couple here is as your backlist continues to grow, how are you handling promoting your backlist and making sure readers are still discovering books you've written previously?
2: Uh, I have an entire system. Um, so uh every three months or so, a different part of my backlist is coming into focus. Um, at different times, I, I follow what I call the life cycle of a book. So during one part of the life cycle, uh, when it's a new release and I'm putting out new releases in a brand new series, I'm only discounting under very specific circumstances. Later on in the life cycle, I am releasing a box set because I know I can kill it with that, but it's probably going to kill sales of the main series. So I'm waiting until that point in life cycle. That makes sense. So I sort of always have this cycle going. And there's a video on my channel, if you guys are curious about it, Um, It's like 25 minutes long where I walk through what I think each of the phases are. But basically over a three-year time period, most genres reset in terms of readership. So the people that already love that genre have moved on and found something else. And the ones that love it still are probably ready to give your book a try again because it's been a few years. So I try to follow that three-year cycle with my advertising. And a lot of times I'll let parts of my, my backlist lie fallow where I'm not advertising, let's say the Void Race series for a few months. Um, but I'm focusing on the Magitech contest I'm always, you know, doing something for my backlist. So every three weeks to a month, there should be something going out to my list saying, Hey, listen, this is on sale or, you know, this collection's been released or I have a new release in this area. Um, it gets easier and easier. I find the more books I have out. I have uh, 34 novels out and, Eight nonfiction, so 42 books and a bunch of bundles, and and now it sort of runs itself. But getting there was really, really hard. When you only have three books out, it's hard to figure out what do I advertise and when do I do it.
0: So, uh, have you found that when you advertise one series, it leads to sales of your other series? And if so, what are some things that authors can do that can encourage that sort of uh, behavior?
2: <laughs> Mr. Um, Forbes, I'm not going to give his full name, uh, gave me a trick which I absolutely love. And that's that I put all of my bundles in one series. So it's called Chris Fox Bundles. And if you buy any of my bundles, you can see all the rest of them and know it exists. So that dramatically increased sales. And what I found, I just released another bundle uh, last week. Um, is that the sales of all of their bundles go up because you're getting eyeballs on a page where they're linked together. It also strengthens the also bots between them. So now anytime I send out any one of my bundles, um, I I can be fairly certain I'm going to see a raise in sales on all of them.
0: That's a really great idea. My 10 book series, I've got three box sets that I've made into their own series. But since my series, my fantasy books all interrelate anyway, it would probably be a good idea just for me to take all of those box sets, put it in the order I recommend people read in, and then just have them all linked together. I think that because I mean, having that box set series has really increased downloads on that series. And mm-hmm. that's been a really, really good thing for me. Um, what was that YouTube video you were talking about just a bit ago, the three year cycle? Do you remember what that one's called just so people can search for it? Uh,
2: marketing is farming,
0: not hunting. Nice. I wouldn't have remembered that. I'm writing it down. Marketing is farming, not hunting. Yeah, okay. I think that's the name of it. Awesome.
2: I um, want to say last summer or so.
0: Okay, that's good. Um, how does your approach to launching a book differ today for your fiction books um, compared to how it did back in the day, you know, five years ago?
2: I make a radically different choice when I, I launch a book now. So if I'm filling in a gap in a series, I do almost no work on the launch. I tell my lists. Um, I might do a couple of swaps. I call it a day. My launches are a lot smaller. They're less profitable when I do those, but they cost me almost nothing in terms of ad spend. And this is because the competition for ad spend on both Amazon and Facebook is insane now. So unless I have a big series like my upcoming fantasy series, Shattered Gods, I don't bother putting that much money into it. Um, when I am going to do a series like that, then I have to build a much longer ramp than I used to. So it used to be, okay, three weeks from now I can, can put together this launch and it'll do just fine. Now I need to do it six months in advance. I need to contact every fantasy author on the planet and say, hey, listen, will you promote for me? Um, you know, I'll have a, a pre-order running well in advance on the, the paperback. So. I feel like we just have to do a lot more than we once did to get more eyes on it. Um, and the takeaway for me is readers are far more valuable than I ever would have thought five years ago. And keeping a reader is much, much better than trying to find a new one. So Yes, you should focus on getting new ones, but please make sure you are also focused on keeping the ones that you have. Throw them a random short story every once in a while. Throw them a survey periodically and ask them questions about things so they feel like they matter and they have a voice. Um, and ultimately, those are the people that are going to help us sustain our career for the, for the rest of our lives.
0: Yeah. I started a a new genre recently and, um, I have an old list that's kind of related to it and I'm working on it, you know, getting them alive again, getting them reactivated and, and used to getting emails from me again. And it's, it's actually a lot harder than I expected it to would be because I'm like, I teach newsletter marketing and look, this is hard. (laughs) And so, I mean, yeah, that's, that's part of it is like, I should have been, I should have emailed them off and on across the last several years rather than just letting it die. And, and I'm going to be you know, I've got short stories that I've got that I'm going to be sending to them that should help, you know, get them excited about things again, but it's, it is, it's a lot harder now than it was when we first started. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So one last question for me. Um, so nonfiction, you've established yourself as an authority in nonfiction. Um, I think that's pretty important for nonfiction authors. How would you recommend authors do that? I know you're going to say like, they need to be in front of people and talking and Uh, How, especially for introverted authors, how would you recommend they, they make themselves into an authority so that their first few books that are nonfiction do sell? Uh, text. If, if
2: you are an introvert and the idea of speaking is terrifying to you and you don't want to go on podcasts and you think that is horrible, uh, you still need a way to get content that your fans can consume and benefit from. And so if you're solving a problem and you're a writer, do it in text and put up blog posts. Um, that's still something a lot of people read. Uh, I think that video has gotten bigger than ever before. And so is audio, but that doesn't mean that uh, blog posts have gone away. They never will. There's always going to be people who can't do video at their workplace and can only read. So. Lean into your strength. Um, don't get on social media platforms you're not interested in. Stick with the ones that you actually like. You know, if, if blogging is something you enjoy, do that. But if it's not, don't feel like you have to do that. I think so many of us spend time chasing down things we're told we're supposed to do when really what you're supposed to do is make your readers happy. Uh, and if you do that, you'll make money.
3: Yeah, you really have to be consistent over a long period of time to build a platform of any type and gain an audience. So it's super hard if you're doing something that you completely detest. So as far as I know, you're all in with Amazon KDP Select and Kindle Unlimited. Would you give your thoughts on the state of KU here in 2021?
2: Oh, that's interesting. We used to have like all sorts of contentious opinions about it five years ago. Is it going to be here? Are we wide? Are we in KU? And now almost every author I talk to is just in KU. Um, I think at this point, I'm going to start pulling series out in the near future because I'm expanding my whole idea of a life cycle of a book. And it not being available in Kindle Unlimited for a few years could actually be beneficial in that it's creating, you know, scarcity. People forget about it and then I can bring it back in. And this is easier to do now that I have more books because I can take a series that isn't selling very well that I made a bunch of money from back in the day and experiment with it and put it over on, you know, Barnes and Noble or, or iTunes or whatever and see how it does. Um, but ultimately I feel like the only game in town is going to be Amazon in the long term. And while it is beneficial for us to be selling directly through our website as well, um, I've never made enough from another retailer to really justify, you know, going all in or spending a lot of time there.
3: I am curious if with Epic Fantasy, I know yours is longer than mine. I think my first one in this series was some thousand, and yours is like 200000 Were you thinking at all like, yeah, this is going to be a beast for page reads? <laughs>
2: And for audio. So you're like, sweet. I don't have to bundle it. It's like 22 hours right out of the gate. Um, I think fans like that a lot. And for page reads, it's going to be amazing. It makes it so much easier to advertise it when you're like, it's not a 45,000 word per book. It's a 200,000, you know, Epic Fantasy Shattered Gods book. And I'm going to get, you know, 850 for a read-through.
3: Yeah, I was actually thinking audio too. That's why I put like 140 or 150, I think was my goal because I was like, that's about 15 hours. And I saw a chart where like, the audible credit people, there was a big jump up that 15 hour mark. That's when they started buying, buying <laughs> in quotes. All right. Well, I hope it goes well for you. I think Joe might've had one more question before we wrap up. Go ahead, Joe. Uh,
1: yeah. So we were talking about like, that was a interesting, that was a cool uh, uh, tip about bundles and like putting them together as their own series. And it made me think like, this is one of those incredibly self-serving. I've been thinking about this earlier today. I might as well ask. Um, so I got into this, you know, ten years ago, uh, and uh, the the popular wisdom at the time was you bundle once you have three books, you put a fourth book out, bundle the first three. Uh, but now I have concluded a lot of my uh, I have concluded three full series, and uh, I have only bundled the first three books in those. And I think that there are other people who who, who will have a question of uh, should you bundle a, a full book bundle. Like, should you be, should you be targeting a full, a full series bundle, that is? Uh, or if you have already bundled a, a portion of a series, not knowing how long the series is going to end up being, what do you do with the remainder? Do, you, do those just remain unbundled or do you do a second bundle or do you do a full series bundle at the risk of repeating the first three? I've seen both.
2: Um, J.S. Morin is the author that I have seen who rebundled it. So the series got longer, he made longer bundles, and now he's got a 100-hour audiobook that is selling like hotcakes. Um, so rebundling it never hurt him. Uh, Chris Cowley says them the same thing, where he'll add short stories and new material. I don't think fans have a problem with it repurchasing the same content. It's only going to cost them a credit anyway. Uh, so that certainly isn't an issue. And all of my most profitable products are complete series. Um, people love it. They know they're going to get a huge amount of content and it's going to have an ending. And, you know, I, I hate to say it, we have to be a little careful with this, but you can kind of fudge it a little bit. So if it's not the complete series and there's more content that comes after, but it's like the complete first arc in the series, um, you could still call it complete. And, and that word is extraordinarily powerful when selling bundles.
0: Well, this has really, really been actually like actually absolutely not actually absolutely great this has actually been really good chris <laughs> <laughs> thank Definitely you what I'm
3: he remembered the name of his series and everything he was a great guest
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: i'm not wearing any pants
0: though we don't require that it's okay <laughs> i'm not wearing pants either they're capris <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. That was really, really beneficial. I love how you, you answer questions. It's like full of meat, not lots of fluff, you know? So listening is easier for me because I'm like, I'm not having to be like, Oh wait, which tangent, you know, it's, it's beneficial for me. You, you present in the style that I like. So (laughs) that was really great for me. Um, and does anybody have any final questions, Lindsay or Joe, you guys done good? We're done. And what Andrea means to say is her mind wanders when I'm talking
3: (laughs) and she appreciates Chris's succinctness much more.
0: Um, no, my mind just wanders. (laughs) Just when people, anyone in general, I have a hard time focusing sometimes. Um, Chris, do you have any last bits of advice for, especially for new authors, anything that, or, or actually, I mean, this last year, this is something that I, I sent my an email to my readers this last week saying, Hey, how things are going for you. I I was upfront with them with how my last series is done, which is not very well. And I had so much, so many authors say that they have stopped or not authors. Readers say that they've stopped buying books because of how the pandemic affected them. Do you have any advice for authors who have been struggling since this whole pandemic, the whole pandemic happened, any authors or any advice for new authors, just starting out during all this craziness, anything like that?
2: Yeah, and I think we all are. Like All of us are, are, or the vast majority of us anyway, are introverts. It goes with being an author. And so it's really impacted us a lot um, being isolated and having a hard time. I recommend forming a community if you're not part of one. Find a group of people who are in this with you um, and lift them up. So my goal going in is always who can I help? Who can I help? Go into my community and, and try to listen to people and ask what's going on with them. Um, if you haven't talked to your readers in a while, send them a survey and say, hey, listen, I know things are time right or hard right now in during the pandemic. How are you getting on? You know, what did you read recently? What was the best thing that happened to you in the last week? Uh, and then maybe share the results of those stories with your reader base to kind of lift them all up. So we uh if we try to be upbeat, um, you know, you, you can't smile and and not, you know, feel a little bit better yourself. So if, if we're the people that are trying to uplift others, we're actually uplifting ourselves. So make the world a better place around you, try and help out, try and uplift. And, and, you know, sometimes that'll help you keep moving too.
0: Awesome. Really great. Um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us. Very, very great information for those who are listening. Where can they find you, your nonfiction, your fiction books, um, your YouTube channel, all of that
2: um is kind of the hub for all of it the youtube channel is youtube slash Chris um i do have a course coming out 5000 words per hour um it's going to be 30 days of motivation and tactics to getting your word count up so i'll have more details about that in the near future most of you i think um that are watching this might already be signed up to my list um so you'll hear about it if you're there if not you can find more details, details on my website
0: Yeah. And send us a link to that. When that goes live, we can you know, share that with our listeners, put it in the Facebook group, all of that, or you can put it in there, whatever (laughs) you can do that yourself if you want. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for that. And, um, thank you everybody for listening and to Joshua Pearson for producing the show. You can find the show notes or leave a comment or question at six figure com with the number six. And if you haven't yet, and you would still like to please consider leaving us a review and we will talk to you all later. Bye. Bye everyone.
1: So long, everybody.